Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Catherine Newman and Elizabeth Jacobs, who are leading thinkers and scholars on labor markets, human capital, and mobility. Catherine is Provost and Executive Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University of California. Elizabeth is a Senior Fellow at the Urban Institute and co-founder of WorkRise, a research-to-action network on jobs, workers, and mobility. They're also the co-authors of a must-read new book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. I'm grateful to speak with them about the book, including how a tight labor market might reshape our political economy. Catherine and Elizabeth, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Let's get right into it. People will increasingly be familiar with the lexicon of tight labor markets, I think at an intuitive level. Listeners will understand that it's a context in which there's greater labor demand than there is supply. But you're not using the term loosely. In fact, the book uses a ton of data and analysis to actually define, at least from the point of view of workers, what optimal tightness looks like. Can you please unpack that a bit? What did you conclude? And what are the implications of a low unemployment rate? Tight labor markets, from our point of view, really begin when unemployment is down around 4.5%. Today, we're even tighter than that. We would call what we're in presently an extremely tight labor market. But the effects that we point to, which involve bringing people into the labor market who've historically been excluded, rising wages, especially at the bottom, improvement in working conditions, including benefits, the development of internal upward mobility opportunities, tend to appear when unemployment goes below 4.5%. And before we look to the present and the future, I wanted to ask about the past, if that's okay. The the labor markets in Canada and the United States, in large part because of the massive growth of the labor supply resulting from the baby boom, were such that for several decades, even in good economic periods, we had relatively high unemployment rates. I remember, for instance, that even during the global financial crisis, our unemployment rate never reached the norms through much of the 1980s and 90s. Can you talk a bit about the historical patterns between labor supply and demand before we get into what's changed and what the implications may be? So we know that we've had tight labor markets in the way that Catherine just described. So a a prolonged period of unemployment under 4.5%. That's happened before. It happened in the the 90s in the dot-com boom. And we saw similar things happening in the labor market, including amongst lower wage workers, these kinds of opportunities for higher wages, higher mobility ladders, etc., That's the one time that we've seen 
these kind of durable and very low unemployment rates. We've had ups and downs for sure, but this kind of stickiness that we feel like we see in the data that you need has really only happened that one other time in the history that we're able to track using the data. Looking ahead, as the growth in the labor supply declines, we're seeing demand outstrip supply for the first time in a long time. Is that happening evenly across the economy? That is to say, are you observing that demand is particularly greater than supply in certain industries, occupations, or even at certain skill levels? There is all kinds of variation. So it's always a bit of a a risk to talk about national unemployment rates, which is why in the book we go down to the state level and originally went down even lower because there are micro differences that are quite important. If you were looking at the border regions, for example, the southern border regions in particular, you would see much higher levels of unemployment than you see in the Northeast, for example. So there are real variations and they have to do with the industries that are on the ground. They have to do with where population growth is located, where immigration is headed. So there are real variations and it's important to recognize them because workers don't live in the nation. They live in the place where they live and the the constraints and opportunities they face are are highly local, except for that very small group of people at the top that are very, very geographically mobile. So I would say geography has a great deal to do with where those labor markets tighten. But some of the dynamics we wanted to look at can be observed nationally. So it's it's important to have both perspectives. Elizabeth, do you want to add to that? Um, the only thing that I would add is to your question about industry and occupation and how there might be variation across those, even in a given place. And we certainly see some of that. But again, to Catherine's point, at a certain point, you need to aggregate up to tell a story about what's happening more generally. And so I think we can say more generally, the trends all point in a particular direction, which is the story that that we're telling about what happens to workers at large. That doesn't mean that every worker in every occupation in a place, even a place that's doing well, is going to see the same kinds of opportunities. At the same time, there's a lot of opportunity for switching, particularly at the bottom of the ladder, for moving into some of those places where there's real opportunity in a given place that's that's really hot. We'll come back to some of your observations, particularly about the, the geographic dynamics. But before we get there, I want to take up the subject of job polarization, which is another of the major labor market trends over the past quarter century or so. The idea of being that the relative share of mid-skilled jobs has fallen in economies like Canada and the United States, and the relative share of low and high-skilled jobs have increased. There are different factors for that, of course. Some of it is trade pressure. Some of it is the adoption of technology and automation in certain sectors. But I want to ask you, if we're entering this period of tight labor markets in what is sometimes called a U-shaped labor market, how will the developments that you're describing interact with the more secular trend of job polarization? Is there a potential to transform low-skilled occupations into mid-skilled ones? I do think that's a very important point. And it goes along with the observation we make in the book that the quickest increases, the fastest rising increases are at the bottom. And that does suggest an improvement in the prospects of those workers. It also means that employers are looking for ways to increase the human capital of people at the bottom because they're costing them more. So you do see more investment in training, for example, and I don't know that that cures the you, but it certainly moves people up and enables them to be upwardly mobile inside firms and between firms where they may get even greater advantage. Does that completely wipe out this polarization trend? No, I don't think so. But it does help to move people who have been at the bottom up in terms of their standard of living 
and up in terms of their human capital profile, which I think is really important. One of the most important aspects of tight labor markets is that it encourages almost naturally employers to invest in training and sometimes to invest in, in formal education, but especially in training and licensing and all of the different ways in which employers can enhance the human capital of their workforce. Now, in the past, when you have looser labor markets, you get qualified people walking in the front door and you don't see that kind of investment. But when labor markets really tighten, you do. And that, I think, is the greatest prospect for improving over the long run the prospects of people at the very bottom. One thing that strikes me about some of the analysis in the book is that a lot of the places where there seems to be the most demand are areas where it's not obvious how those functions can be outsourced. A lot of them are caregiving or food and hospitality, which tend to be face-to-face. They involve human interaction. In a world in which employers are struggling to fill jobs, and a lot of these jobs are ones that can't be easily outsourced to jurisdictions with larger labor supplies, what are the options? Do you want to talk a bit about how employers can solve for a tight labor market? Well, they can make their workers more productive, and that's probably their best bet, especially when they're paying more. But if I may tell a short anecdote here, many years ago, I wrote a book called uh, No Shame in My Game, The Working Poor in the Inner City. And the focus of that book was the fast food industry. And I chose it because I thought this can't be outsourced and it can't be automated. People have to eat their hamburgers where they are and they need somebody to cook them. Well, if you go into a fast food restaurant now, and including the ones I studied, you will see that there are automated screens for entering uh, an order that were not there before. Those were all done across the counter. And so you do have some industries that we thought could never be automated looking a little more automation friendly. Similarly, we are starting to see in hospitals the use of robots to deliver supplies around the hospital. It's still nascent. And as long as growth rates are high, you don't really observe it that much because there's there's growth going on at the same time that automation is, is developing. So I don't think we completely understand the limits of automation. I certainly agree that you can't transport those fast food jobs to some other place. They they happen where they happen. And, and of course, as we know, automation generates demand for other kinds of occupations. Somebody's got to monitor those menus and make sure the electronics are working and it, and that's a group of people that weren't in those restaurants before. So uh, overall, most economists argue that automation tends to either hold steady or increase employment overall. But of course, workers don't live in an economy of overall. They they live in the occupations they have. And so if one group is displaced and another group grows, it doesn't help the displaced group unless there's some way to train them so that they can move into those other occupations. So I, this is a very mobile development. I don't think we've seen the end of it, and I don't think we could even forecast the end of it. But what I would say is that at the moment, labor demand is definitely outstripping the supply and automation is not able to blunt this. We would see much higher unemployment if it could, and we don't. I want to take up the subject of geography, which we've talked about already. You'll know, and and many of our listeners will know, that sometimes these gaps between demand and supply can result from a mismatch in in a local labor market. You know, that is to say, labor demand and supply may not be in the same place. I grew up in a town in Canada for which this discussion may not resonate as much because it's a place that has experienced deindustrialization and population loss. Do you want to talk about the geographic distribution of your analysis? 
I, I assume it's more concentrated in some places than others. And if so, what should we be doing? Should people be relocating? And is there a role for public policy to facilitate that? So first of all, the trends that we see work at least function across the country. And so while there's certain variation within that, we see overall that this is a relationship that that persists. So that's just a starting place. That said, there are certainly, you know, deep pockets of the US and in Canada where places have have deindustrialized, where opportunity isn't necessarily there. And so I'm sure hearing stories about a, a white hot labor market is like, what are you talking about? That's not <laughs> good for me. I think if there's one thing that we've learned during the pandemic, it's how much work isn't actually place specific. I think we're in a transition period right now. We're figuring out what actually has to take place in an office, in a place, um, and what can happen not in a place, but remotely. We're, there's really an, an open question there and a lot of opportunity. And so that's one thing that adds a new development coming out of this kind of confusing period is that it's unclear how much place really matters. And this idea that you need to move people from low opportunity places into high opportunity places, I think is very much in question because there are so many positions that used to be thought of in place that aren't anymore. And then the other thing that I'll say is that there are spillover effects in terms of a a hot place. It can become less expensive to move an industry from a very expensive urban market to a much less expensive rural market that may have deindustrialized. So I think even in the context of, for example, the green jobs transition in the U.S., there are real transitions happening. They're kind of reindustrializing in some ways, places that have been deindustrialized in the past. And that all is part of the engine of what comes out of labor markets that are that are really driving productivity and change in positive ways. There's a ton of insight there, Elizabeth. Let me pick up some of those points. A lot of our conversation has been focused on relatively low-skilled occupations, what you might call working-class occupations. One of the challenges in Canada is a lot of a lot of the demand for those jobs is in labor markets with really high housing prices so that people face this conflict. The labor market is screaming at the top of its lungs for workers, but they simply can't afford to live in those high-demand areas. Do you want to talk about the place of housing in your story and the role for public policy to enable people to be responsive to those labor market signals? So we did focus on this uh, in a chapter that's specifically about neighborhoods and how neighborhoods respond to tight labor markets. And because most of the research was being done in Boston, which is an overheated rental market, we're very aware of the phenomenon you're describing. And what I would say is that there isn't an easy solution here. You do see that the same phenomena or same drivers that are leading to tight labor markets are also leading to increased costs in terms of of rent in particular. So the first thing that happens is that you see affluent people who uh, can't afford the rents in the central city anymore starting to push out into areas that were more impoverished in the past. And that's a transition that has happened many, many times over. You have neighborhoods in the sort of inner ring going from poor to rich to poor to rich as the economic cycle proceeds. One of the policy dimensions that we do discuss in the book is the importance of moving away from very strict phase-outs of housing benefits that have protected poor people or given, given them a greater degree of housing stability than they've had in the past. But because we have these very strict cutoffs, because in, at least in the U.S., we are obsessed by free riders and panic that somehow if people are not driven to you know the satanic mills, that they won't go to work. And in fact, what we see is that most, the vast majority of Americans want to work, want to pull ahead, but 
they can't outstrip these housing costs. And so what we need to do is to take programs like Section 8 and make them a little bit more flexible, a little bit more oriented toward enabling long-term freedom from the need for those benefits, rather than being obsessed by cutting people off so quickly that they can't actually consolidate the gains that are accruing to them in tight labor markets. So we do think there are policy instruments. You know, some cities have experimented with rent control. That's very controversial, but some have used it to good effect in order to stabilize housing. But housing is probably the single most complex variable in affordability. And it's not an easy one, especially if the supply of housing is constrained. Now, in many American cities now, we are seeing state governments take the bull by the horns and order localities to build more housing, basically by saying, if you don't build more housing, we are going to come in and determine what housing you're going to have built. So do it now yourselves, or we will do it for you. Here in California, where I live, we're seeing this play out. It was true in Massachusetts as well. You had these ordinances that basically demanded a certain proportion of affordable housing, and any community that fell below that level would see the state come in and order their own architects. Transit-oriented housing is a big piece of this because there's also a desire to see that this be accommodated through public transit rather than overload the roads. So there are various policy instruments, some of which are driven by a clean energy agenda, others of which are, are driven by the need to make housing affordable. Very little of it is driven by the need to accommodate to a tight labor market, in part because it just moves so quickly that it's difficult to adjust housing costs accordingly. So making transit more affordable, right? And I mean, it's not fun to have to commute a long distance, but making it at least feasible. There are cities that are experimenting with free, free transit. Boston is experimenting right now with making public buses free in order to, again, make it possible for people to move further out of the city and still be within the labor market orbit of the city. So there are many policy instruments that are worth looking at. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. There's been some controversy in Canada around the place of what we call temporary foreign workers. These are workers who aren't entering the country through the permanent resident stream, but that companies rely on on an almost transactional basis to meet their labor needs. Critics would say that, well, there may be some particular sectors where temporary foreign workers are necessary. The rise of TFWs in the past decade or so is an effort on the part of businesses to extract themselves from the dynamics of a tight labor market. You want to talk a bit about the role of immigration in your story generally, and in particular efforts on the part of business to use immigration to blunt the market's upward pressure on wages. I mean, we think that there are a number of demographic forces behind the tight labor markets that we saw pre-pandemic and now um, in the period we're in now. And one of those in the U.S. is the fact that we've really clamped down on immigration, in addition to the fact that we have declining birth rates and an aging baby boom. So all of those things come together to reduce labor supply. 
Whether or not that's the right way to create a tight labor market is certainly an open question, but it's certainly an important factor because the balance of supply and demand is determined by demographic forces with immigration being being a big part of that. Just in parentheses, uh, Catherine Elizabeth, we have a kind of extraordinary model where our permanent resident targets are extremely high, about half a million people per year moving forward. But that only tells a small part of the story because through visas, temporary foreign workers, educational visas, et cetera, the actual number entering the country is something more like 1.2, 1.3 million per year. And that other part tends to be neglected when we think about public policy, particularly as it relates to labor markets. Canada just has a much more intelligent immigration policy, let's face it. It, it seems to be driven more by data and by thinking about the needs of the country and the demands of the labor market than the U.S., which seems to be driven by divisive politics and, and almost data-free in, in our way of thinking. So, you know, a number of us have advocated that the U.S. should be paying much more attention to what the Canadian model looks like. It is a more intelligent model. It is geared toward a society that needs more people, and, and we need more people, too. And in fact, we think, Elizabeth and I have written about how you could accommodate a more flexible and generous immigration policy as long as those people are subject to the same laws and the same benefits. What we don't want is to see immigration used as a cudgel to drive down wages as it was in the past. And, and that was, you know, long distance past in particular. And it's the reason why immigration became such a flashpoint for um, many working class communities, because they saw that this was strike breaking and they saw that this was an effort to blunt their, you know, wage improvements and so on. So we need more people. Immigration has long been a tremendous strength of the United States. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for immigration policies of the past. I've never asked Elizabeth about her family, but I know mine wouldn't be here if my grandfather hadn't been led into Ellis Island when he was a child. We do not want to see immigrants become, as they often were and still are, especially for the undocumented, the exploited bottom layer of the labor market that have no rights uh, that will be respected. Canadian labor productivity has been pretty abysmal for a long time. In fact, we've published analysis at The Hub um, that shows that it actually fell into negative territory during different times in the pandemic. Can you talk a bit about the potential interaction between tight labor markets and labor productivity? Elizabeth, you want to take a shot at that one <laughs> while I sure, think about I it? Take a shot at that. I mean, I think so. I don't know if this will answer exactly your question, but I can talk a little bit about some thoughts on productivity. The U.S. labor market has been similarly somewhat less productive than one might expect, given all of the other factors going on. And there's an open question as to why that's happening. And I don't think anyone knows. And so that's part of the pause, I think, from both Catherine and myself, is that's a good question and no one actually knows the answer. And that wasn't part of what we were addressing directly. But I will say that there are good reasons to think that some of the things that we put in place over time that make the labor market more functional for workers, for example, protections, processes, things that may seem like red tape, but are actually super important for making sure that, for example, buildings don't fall down in construction, which is a great example of an industry that's seen flat or falling productivity on with workers in ways that are kind of surprising, um, given all that we know about how society has advanced. But there are good reasons why we have those things in place. I don't know if that's the actual cause of what's driving down productivity or not. I think it's a real open question. But there are some good reasons why you might imagine that productivity wouldn't 
fly ahead if you're actually regulating and making markets work in a way that is kind of a kinder and fairer to the people involved. There's a trade-off um, with productivity being one of various things that you might measure to see if something is working correctly or not. Um, so that's my stab at, at an answer. I think there are many more. And Catherine, if you have anything to add, I'm, I'm happy. The only thing I can add is I wouldn't want to be in charge of measuring productivity in a period when remote work has become so predominant. I don't think we really know how to measure this anymore. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot more work to be done. And the jury is out as to whether or not we really are less productive. I'm not absolutely sure that's the case. Because one of the things that happens with remote work is that you know, lots of people are working many other hours than they used to, right? They come back to work late at night, they work on the weekend, because now work is being done, it's not being done in the office, or it's not only being done in the office. So I just think it's a difficult thing to measure. But put that on your list, Sean, of things other people should work on. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I had in mind, I'll move to another question. But what I had in mind is, is comes back to something you raised earlier, Catherine, which is, will we see a greater investment in productivity enhancing equipment and technology because of tight labor markets and as such actually start to see growth in labor productivity as people are able as workers are able to leverage those those investments well we certainly see more investment in people themselves their skills i don't know how much more investment there has been in technology per se but the ability of people to use technology, the, the, the sort of literacy that we have with technology, all of that clearly is being enhanced because you have to get more out of the people that you've hired. You can't you can't not pay them those higher wages and you want to hold on to them. So investing in them and giving them more portable skills becomes one of the ways you do that, even if you lose them in the end to some other company willing to pay more. Earlier in our conversation, Catherine, you mentioned the potential for tight labor markets to pull marginalized groups into the center of the economy. Do you want to talk a bit about that? And in particular, how we can create a culture and a policy framework that can better accommodate and utilize the human capital of persons with disabilities? Yes. I mean, there are a number of groups that are showing record levels of employment, and people with disabilities are one of those groups. Another group that Elizabeth and I highlight are people with criminal records who are now in much greater demand than they were before. So you've got many groups that were sitting on the edges of the labor market trying to find their way in and being blocked because of these qualitative distinctions and prejudices fundamentally. And the wonderful thing about tight labor markets is it's like a prejudice-busting machine. It forces employers to look in directions they wouldn't have before. Now, when they start to take those people in, you know, much of the time they're pleasantly surprised. Oh, it turns out Joe, who's been in jail for the last 20 years, is actually a pretty good worker. And if Joe's given half a chance, especially because he knows this is his once-in-a-lifetime chance, Joe will not only work out well, Joe will turn out to work out better than some of those other people that had an easier time getting in your front door. The big question in our minds, and we, we were able to look at this to a, a little bit of an extent, is will that employer now think, hmm, is Joe's just a diamond in the rough? Or will they think, all those other Joes out there, maybe I should take another look at them and maybe I should have a regular way of searching for those other Joes. And we did see evidence of employers starting to build relationships, for example, with county sheriffs and to search, especially seeking men with blue collar skills. 
And starting to realize that is a labor supply that if it's carefully vetted, they can make use of. And if they invest in it, it will turn out to be less turnover, higher productivity. That is a shocker, but that's actually what the data seem to be showing, that you see a, a decline in of, of unemployment among people with criminal records by about 50% in some states. We don't have really good data on this, but in the states where we've got some data that we do see very dramatic declines when they're tight labor markets. And you see this kind of investment that then turns into a longer term opportunity. What we want to see is that this then starts to remove barriers. Now, there are policy instruments that we need in order to take that to its fullest extent. For example, people with felony records cannot work on federally funded job sites, including construction, right? So, if, you know, in, in Massachusetts, you've got all of these biotechnology labs that are being built with federal grant dollars. If you have a felony record, you cannot pour cement. That's crazy. We shouldn't, you know, I understand the anxieties employers might have if they're talking about, I don't know, people who were convicted of embezzlement working with money. But unless it's a really targeted, tight kind of objection of that kind, we ought to get rid of those those blanket restrictions. There are other kinds of restrictions in licensing that, you know, people are denied the opportunity to even try to study for such a license. So there are some formal ways in which we can get around this. With respect to the disabled, Zoom technology has been a freaking amazing benefit to people who are disabled because they can do their jobs from a from a desk instead of having to, you know, move around through transit, which can be very difficult if you're physically handicapped. But both Physical and mental disabilities are, folks with those conditions are employed at a much higher level when labor markets are tight. And I will finish by saying, don't we want them to do that as opposed to seeing them in long-term disability roles where they're dependent on government programs instead of earning for themselves? Do you think that if these trends persist, we'll see downward pressure on credentialization in our labor market? Will, will this put an end to the race on the part of young people to get advanced degrees and so on to, to be able to participate in the labor market. And then maybe just secondly, to wrap up, why don't you paint in our final moments just a, bro a broader picture of what a sustained period of tight labor markets means for our political economy? So we see in the data, and we have historic evidence of this as well, that in um, historic evidence shows us in places where the labor market tightens by looking at job ads. So what kind of credentials show up in an ad that an employer posts, you see a lot less credentialism, a lot less BA required when the labor market is tight. And we see that across the country now. There's a movement to move away from credentials-based hiring and towards skills-based hiring. Um, I actually just spent today with a group of employers and job training practitioners who are thinking hard about that. And I would posit, and you can come back to me in a, in a couple of years when the economic <laughs> circumstances change, we'll see if I'm right. I would posit that what we've seen now between both the imperative created by tight labor markets combined with a realization of the inequities that come with credential-based hiring come from who has access to education, who has the assets to complete a college education, it's very, very, very racially intertwined in the U.S. And by moving away from credentials and towards skills, you end up with a workforce that's much more tightly honed to what you need them to do and relying less on a very weak signal. And on top of that, it starts to break down some equity barriers that have been long baked into the U.S. Those two things combined, I think, are a reason to believe that this will stick and potentially outlast 
a tight labor market and really fundamentally change the way we think about matching people to jobs in ways that create real equity that we haven't had previously in this country. I'm going to cross my fingers on that one and turn it to Catherine for, for her wrap up. So let, let me end very quickly. I'm going to do it by telling a story that we just learned about a day or so ago when we were doing another interview where somebody called into a Detroit public radio station and explained that he had spent 18 years working as a temp- temporary employee with no benefits, no health insurance, nothing. And that when labor markets tightened up, his employer made him a regular employee vastly raised his wages, like by 50%, gave him health insurance. This is going to allow him to pay off his mortgage three times as fast as he otherwise thought he could and spend a lot more money taking care of educating the next generation in his family. If we were fortunate enough to see tight labor markets persist for a longer period of time, there would be millions of people just like him. And isn't that what we really want? We want the great American or Canadian job machine to produce opportunity for upward mobility, to produce opportunity for stability, to reduce the need for people to rely on government benefits and allow them to rely on themselves, while remaining attuned to the need for a safety net when things start to fall apart. There is a very important role for that safety net, but it should become, in good, better times, a springboard for mobility, and that's the policy challenge. But there's a great deal, even absent policy, that tight labor markets do on their own just by changing the dynamics dynamics of supply and demand to make this a better world, especially for people at the very bottom. It's a great message and it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.